Our subject tonight, we are continuing the series on the Minor Prophets. And tonight we deal with uh, uh, the longest of them, uh, Zechariah. We won't try to cover Zechariah in one lesson, but we will take two or three. Zechariah, the man with the strange visions. And instead of reading ahead, I think we'll just read as we go along in the study. But let us unite our hearts in prayer first. Almighty God, we thank Thee for those who've shared tonight and for the work they are doing. We thank Thee for this time together to look into Thy Word and to have presented to our minds those things which Thou dost know are needful for us to live a life of the fullest fellowship with Thee. We realize that uh, men can live life apart from Thee, that that's their natural condition, and that only as they come to know about themselves and about Thee will they see how Thou canst be approached. We thank Thee that Thou hast not left us to stumble in darkness, but hast given us a sure and certain word a light in a dark place, that thou hast given every proof of it being from thee. And we would hear tonight what thou would say, as the Lord of hosts does speak in his word, and we would be quiet before thee, and we would let thee speak to us authoritatively. We ask that thy spirit accompany our study with his illumination with his wielding of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, we thank thee for his presence here right now, for who he is, for what he came to do, for what he is doing in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the year is November. <clears throat> the year is 520 B.C., and the month is November. And... The situation among the people of God, that people that God has seen fit to choose and set apart from other nations to make them the depository of his revealed truth, to raise up from their number prophets that he would guide so that they would speak from God, uh, this people because of their sin, have been in captivity. The greater majority of them destroyed, but a remnant remaining and brought back to continue as the ones through whom God will make himself known to the world. Those alone who have light, those alone who know God, the true God, God brings them back, and now chastened, and now not so inclined to idolatry, and now willing, perhaps, to listen, and yet still men, men with sinful natures, they're back in their land. They've been back some 16 years. They came back in 536. When Cyrus overthrew the Babylonian Empire and, as one of his first acts, issued a decree 
that the Jewish people should be allowed to return to their nation, all who wish to go, and uh, rebuild their capital, Jerusalem. And do you remember how uh, a number went and started this work of rebuilding and were given help from Cyrus in terms of uh, the needed materials? But there was strong opposition. There were those who were openly bitter enemies, and there were those who claimed to be friends but were in reality enemies. And the petition was made uh, to later rulers that this group uh, historically were seditionists, were uh, those who, as soon as they gained some power, would again rebel against the empire. This should not be allowed. And eventually, due to discouragement such as that, the work was stopped. One of the first things that had been done, the foundation of the temple which had been burned, was laid. But even this had stopped. Then you remember that God had raised up a prophet, Haggai. And Haggai's message, uh, some 16 years after their return, was uh, this people say that the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. But I notice that you built your own houses, and that you've built rather luxurious houses. And I think the time has come. As a matter of fact, God says the time has come and that you're guilty for such delay. True, there is stiff opposition, but now further delay involves guilt. And the people, we're told, listened to Haggai's preaching. And they responded in earnest repentance, and they came together, and they decided, we will begin work on the house of the Lord. And just a few months after Haggai has spoken his message, and it's been responded to, another prophet stands forth, Zechariah, and he adds his voice to that of Haggai. And he starts off with a call of repentance. As he says in the opening verses of the first chapter of the book of Zechariah, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. And what happened to them? Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? It was a serious thing to go against the Lord of hosts, to not repent when his voice sounded from his authorized messengers, and they knew this. We might say, but have they not already responded to a message of repentance? Have not they already turned and have prepared to begin work on the Lord's house? Yes. Then why this fresh call to repentance? Because repentance is a continuing work. The life of the Christian, the life of the believer in God, uh, in its fullest sense, is a life of 
continuing, deepening repentance. Repentance is never perfect. And there were those in their midst who were not really repentant, even though a great number had earnestly considered and were preparing. But this fresh call to repentance now sounds forth. And then just a few months later, some three months later, Zechariah has a rather unusual night. Apparently, in one night, eight visions. And he tells us of these visions that came to him one after another after another. Someone reading it might think that Isaiah, I mean, that Zechariah had been out on the town. <laughs> I've heard men describe similar visions after they had been. But uh, Zechariah's visions are from the Lord, and they carry a tremendous message. They carry a message of comfort to God's people. Luther says, notice the connection between the call to repentance and the message of comfort. Just because Zechariah was commissioned to deliver this message of comfort, by and large, it had to be preceded with a call to repentance. It's dangerous to speak comfort to people without first speaking repentance. This is to comfort them in their sins. This is to lead them to be at ease in Zion. So it's first the word of repentance, and then these visions. The visions are apocalyptic in nature, and we might wonder why. This is unusual. You don't encounter this uh, much. Uh, in the Old Testament, you encountered a great deal in the book of Revelation. Why does God employ this form of revelation? Why didn't he not just simply set forth one, two, three, four, the things that he wanted said? And the only reason that uh, can be given is because God chose to do it this way. And yet it would cause us to reflect on how this comes home to us. The fact that God did speak in divers manners in times past in itself uh, causes a new fresh, fresh interest when a new form of revelation comes. Men are awakened anew to examine God's word. It's interesting. It, it requires probing to get the message. Notice the time that this series of visions is given in the seventh verse of the first chapter upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month. The four and twentieth day of the eleventh month. This we find from a comparison with Haggai is the very day that they actually begun work again on the temple. Fresh obedience brings fresh vision, brings fresh revelation, fresh light from God. To him that hath shall be given is the New Testament principle. The man who has light and follows that light shall get more light. And as soon as this obedience is an actuality, new light comes from God, new, a new fresh word from him directed to the situation. The first vision is described uh, starting with uh, verse 8. 
I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him there were red horses speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Here we have this vision of a group of trees, myrtle trees, small evergreen trees, in a bottom, in a low place, in a hollow. And there, hidden in the trees, is a leader on a horse, and behind him, others on a horse. And as we observe, we find that this is an angel. Only this is not any ordinary angel. This is the angel of the Lord, the leader. And behind him, angels. The trees, the trees represent the people of God in their situation. The church, you might say, or the, the true believers within the nation there in a very lowly condition, in a, in a low place. You get great nations and great empires represented by great trees, but here we just have a little evergreen, a number of them, in a, in a low place. The people were conscious of this. They knew they were in a low place, and they were discouraged about their fewness and about their, their defenselessness. But notice what he says. He says, there's one there in your midst, the angel of the Lord. You know, it's been 200 years since the angel of the Lord had said anything to the nation. 200 years since that great figure who actually is the Old Testament Christ. Christ appearing in the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. We know this from other scripture where he accepts worship, where he, in effect, identifies himself with the Lord. Here he is, uh, in effect, in the midst, even though they are in a low place. And those behind him are his hosts. Notice the phrase, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, over and over. Fifty-three times that phrase is used in this book of Zechariah, more than anywhere else. The Lord of hosts, he has his hosts, he has his agency, he has his powers that stand there even though you cannot see them, even though you feel yourself defenseless, there is a divine presence in your midst, one watching, one who has been sent for this very purpose to see how it goes. And this angel of the Lord goes on then to intercede for Israel. In verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? The Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. Here's the great message, comfortable words. As he goes on to say that, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I'm jealous over Jerusalem with a great jealousy. I'm sore displeased with the heathen and for the way they've treated them and so on. And uh, that he will bless. Here's the first vision, the watcher, the divine presence, even though they're in a low place. 
Then the second vision is given. Uh, this vision starts off in the 18th verse uh, of this first chapter. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, and to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. These four horns, often in Scripture a horn, represents a world empire, a world power. Here they would speak of every power, every weapon that is formed against God's people. And they were very conscious of the weapons that were formed against them, both within their midst and without. And they were very discouraged, even as they began work on rebuilding the temple in obedience, they're discouraged, but they didn't know the forces and the agencies that God was setting in motion to deal with each weapon that would be formed against his people, the four carpenters who would handle the four horns and would free them and scatter them. Divine protection, first divine presence, second divine protection from every enemy. Third vision has to do with a man with a measuring line. In the second chapter, in the first verse, I lifted up mine eyes again, and look, and behold, the man with a behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Whither goest thou? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him. Run, speak this to the young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about her, and the glory in the midst of her. Here we have this vision of a man going forth to measure Jerusalem, the breadth and the length thereof, with a measuring line. This man would represent, in a sense, the common opinion. The average Jew of that day, he believed that Jerusalem would be rebuilt as the Lord had promised. But he didn't envision anything like what the Lord had in mind for his people. The enlargement, the glorious future that the Lord had in mind. Uh, his conception of the city of God was too small. He fails to see the great things that God is going to do, that walls would not be needed in a sense because it would be such an immense people. This does not speak of a literal wall. They would need a literal wall, and they would rebuild the literal wall, not for another 80-odd years when Nehemiah would come and build it. They did need a defense, and God expected them, in a sense, to use means but their true protection would not be in any wall that they would build. It would be in their Lord. He would be a wall of fire round about. But the big point of it is that the enlargement would be such that no walls could contain her. A multitude of people. This points forward not so much to the earthly Jerusalem and the literal Israel, 
As it points to Abraham's other children, you and I, people from every nation that would be blessed through him, the Gentiles who would come and be a part of the people of God. <clears throat> Notice, uh, as we read on in this same context, starting with the sixth verse of the second chapter, he says, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. Here's the angel of the Lord speaking, and he says, I've been sent after the nations that spoiled you to get glory. And this is, of course, exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ would do. He would be sent not just to the Jews, but to the nations to subdue every enemy under his feet to get glory, as praise would be rendered to him from every nation under sun. He that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Here we've got the, the mission that the angel of the Lord would be sent upon to get glory from the nations that spoiled them. We've got the concern that he had for his own people. They were the apple of his eye. We've got uh, the omnipotence with which he will get this glory and accomplish his purposes. It will not be any struggle. He will simply wave his hand, and he will spoil the nations. Uh, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil. You've got the greatest blessing of all then spoken of. Verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O people of God, O daughter of Jerusalem. For lo, I come... Lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. An amazing dwelling of God with his people, a new fellowship, hitherto unexperienced with his people. This points to the incarnation of God, that God would become a man and would dwell with his people. This started with the incarnation. You and I share the fellowship right now. This amazing new form of fellowship that would be ushered in to the people of God. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And that was a promise of what would take place in your life and mine. And I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, unto thee. A vision of divine prosperity, an enlargement of the people of God that no man could have envisioned. And then the fourth vision, and the last that we'll try to handle tonight, has to do with divine purity, divinely provided purity. You know, you've got tremendous encouragement given here. They were uh, very much aware of their low estate, and he says, yes, but I'm present. They were very much aware of the weapons formed against them, but he says, yes, but I'll handle that. I've sent my agencies to deal with those weapons. They were very much aware uh, of their smallness and their need of walls, and he says, I will be your defense, and I'm going to enlarge you so that no walls would contain the people of God. 
But one thing that would still be a discouragement to them, a thing that would be a discouragement to you and I if these same promises were made to the nation of America today. The serious-minded among them might say, but how can God bless us in that way? We're so sinful. There's so much sin rampant in our midst. And God says, yes, I know how you feel about that, but I've even got a provision for your guilt. The cleansing of the high priest, Joshua, is this fourth vision. As we read in the third chapter, the first verse, he showed me Joshua, the high priest. This is not the Joshua who led the people uh, into the promised land. This is another Joshua who was the high priest at that time. Standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. You notice the accusations that are being made by Satan. God, you have no right to to bless this people. They are sinful. Even after you've dealt thus harshly with them, they still go on in their sins. You are a just God. You must punish. The accusation, Satan there, the adversary. You notice the act that then takes place. The act of a change of clothes, as it says that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, <clears throat> and he, <clears throat> the angel of the Lord, answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and, in, and the angel of the Lord stood by. This action of changing his clothes from filthy garments to fresh, pure, clean garments, a fair mitre upon his head. This speaks of the removal of iniquity. I have removed your iniquity. Up to this point, we might feel that it's just Joshua who's so sinful that he is the one that's concerned uh, here. But actually, remember the represent, representative position that Joshua is in. Joshua is the representative before God of the people. And really the filthy garments that he is clothed with, clothed with and the accusations against him are simply the sins of the nation, uh, the sins of the day that they are charged with. And when his cleansing is indicated, their cleansing is indicated, their removal of guilt. Then you have an admonition directed to Joshua. This is the other side of that transaction. As it says uh, in verse 6, The angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house, and thou shalt keep my courts, and I will give thee places to walk among those that stand by. This free forgiveness, this free causing to pass away their iniquity and clothing them with a holiness in his sight involved the responsibility, the responsibility to be holy, to walk 
in the Lord's ways. And only if they followed through on this would uh, the Lord continue to bless, in a sense. Then we've got an advance. First we've had this accusation, this act, this admonition, and now an advance from these priests of the day to another priest who had come. That these priests were but the typical symbols of, in a sense. Notice the eighth verse. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. These are wonderful men. For, behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a messianic designation or title, the branch. My servant is another title of the Messiah. In effect, says this Messiah who will come, your office is wonderful because it typifies him in all of his glory as the real high priest of my people. And you notice the connection between the coming of this high priest and the passing away of their iniquity. Who is it that will actually cause their sins to pass away? It's when the iniquity of the land is removed in one day. In verse 9, Behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. He says, I will do an act that will not ever be repeated. It will never need to be repeated. It will effectually deal with sin. In one day I will remove iniquity from my people. And of course this points forward to Calvary. This great branch who will come, this servant of God, he will effect that which enables God to remove the guilt from his people, to see his people as dressed in a perfect righteousness, to cause their sinful lives to pass away in a sense. All of this, in a sense, I think, is brought forth <clears throat> in a poem that makes it personal for you and me, and that's exactly what it should be. These things do not only speak of Israel, they speak of your situation and mine. I sinned, and straightway post-haste Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, This soul, this thing of clay and sod, has sinned. Tis true, he has named thy name, but I demand his death. For thou hast said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night, and every word he spoke, O oh, God, was true. Then quickly one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, every jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled, the guilty sinner dies. But wait, suppose his guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, my feet. One day I was made sin for him, and died that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan flew away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against that love, for every word my dear Lord spoke was true. 
That's the picture presented for us here. There is an accuser, there is an adversary, but there is also an advocate, the mighty branch, the, the servant of Jehovah that he would send, who would effectually cause our iniquity to pass away in one day would effectually deal with sin. Brethren, as we say, uh, these things uh, are not just God's revelation of comfort for his people then, they're his revelation of comfort for his people now. This word of Zechariah is spoken to you and to me if we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You feel like you're in a a bottom, huh? You ever feel uh, that uh, how in the world will God's people ever prevail in the situation? And we're so few in number in a sense when you compare it to the apostate group within so-called Christendom. How few the Christians are in Christendom. And when you compare it to the mighty forces that are ranged against God's church everywhere and the population explosion in the ground that we're losing every day. We're in a bottom, so to speak, but God says he's present, that his divine watcher is there with all the hosts hell in reserve needed to bring victory to his own and vengeance on his enemies. Again, uh, this word about uh, divine protection from every weapon that can be formed, all the weapons that are formed against God's people. I've watched them over the years. I've watched the weapons formed against our local church. And many times I've trembled and I've gone down on my knees and I've said, Oh God, surely, surely this one will overthrow us. We'll never survive this particular weapon. But God's always sent forth a carpenter to handle that horn and to scatter it and to free it and to bring us out advanced from the position that we held. And God will continue to do that. Then again, I've watched, uh, uh, we would feel, in a sense, the, the need <clears throat> for protection, uh, walls round about us. And, and the Lord says that he is a wall of fire round about. We don't need other walls necessarily. He is our defense. And then we would look at ourselves and we would say, but how can God bless when we still fall so far short of what we should be? And for that accusation, there's an advocate who stands and says, yes, but I paid for it in full, and I've dressed you in my own righteousness, and in the sight of God, you are forgiven in virtue of the work that I've done. Brethren, these promises are made to us. Do you see yourself as complete in him that in Jesus Christ is the answer to every need that you and I have? We are complete in him. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and he dwells in us. We are complete in him. We need not fear death. We need not fear life. We need not fear the accusations of Satan. We need not fear the weapons that are formed against us. We are complete in him. He is the great I am. I am what dost thou need, is his voice to his people. Do you see yourself as complete in Christ? If so, it calls for reliance upon him in every situation. 
When that weapon comes against you, use whatever means there are for defense, as David used the pebble against Goliath, but don't rely on it. Rely on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who will deal with that thing. And when you become discouraged, remember, he is present with his people. It calls for faith right in the middle of the storm. It calls for holiness because he can't bless if we don't continue to walk closely to him. He'll have to deal with us. He'll have to let us fall in a sense to bring us back to him. It calls for a holy walk. I wonder if you've seen yourself as dear to him. He says, he that touches you touches the apple of my eye. We read about that stone that seven eyes rested upon. That stone speaks of his people. The eyes of God always watching, always concerned over his people. Are you here and you're not a Christian? Could it be that you're here and you're one of those weapons even that's been formed against Christians that you yourself have accused God's people that you yourself have sought to undermine the faith of some or you yourself have been a stumbling block to some. Don't you realize the folly of such that God is the Lord of hosts, that no man can effectively resist him? Have you ever lifted up your hand against one of God's own, against the apple of his eye, There is a way that sin can be removed. There is one who has effectively dealt with it. And if you'll come to Jesus Christ and tonight surrender your will to him as your Lord, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my master and trust him in the work he did on Calvary when he was made sin for you. Tonight your filthy garments will be caused to pass from you in the sight of God and you will be dressed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Tonight, this transaction can take place. Lord Jesus, I trust you as my Savior. I invite you into my life. And I would invite you to do it and to come and talk with me about it.